Nicodemus had his doubts, which was really quite remarkable for someone who belonged to the group of Pharisees, even more so for somebody who belonged to the special ruling council, the Sanhedrin. This was not a group that that usually questioned, but rather a group that was quite confident in themselves. In fact, if there was one thing that this group was confident about, especially when compared to other groups, other classes, other types of people, it was that they were quite confident they were in good with God, that they had what it took to measure up before him. They had been raised that way, they had been trained that way, and they continued to encourage and remind each other of that assurance and to even enhance it a little bit by sometimes adding additional requirements of the law to pad their stats, so to speak, to make themselves feel better about accomplishing even more above and beyond what God expected of them. And they would encourage each other by elevating one another on pedestals in comparison to where everybody else in society was. So they were normally quite confident of where they stood before God. But this normally self-assured Nicodemus was suddenly not so sure. He had his doubts. We don't know exactly what it was that that prompted it. We don't know exactly the, the question that he was wrestling with. It's kind of like when you, when you walk into a, a room or a place and, and you, you smell something, you think, and you're not quite sure of what it is at, at that point. Do we smell something? And then you, you wonder, is, is it actually a good smell? Is it a bad smell? I, I'm not quite sure what it is. I can't put my finger on what it is, but you know something is there. Nicodemus knew something was unsettling him. Even if he didn't know what it was, he knew what the cause of it was. And that drew him to go to the source, Jesus. In an effort to save face, to to not look bad amongst his fellow Pharisees, uh, probably, it, it seems more likely that that's why he visited Jesus at night. It wouldn't have looked too good for him, a Pharisee, to be hanging out with public enemy number one, Jesus. So, Regardless of what it was that he was struggling with, uncertain of what it was, he knew to go to the source to start with Jesus. And that's a great place for any of us to start. To start with Jesus. Because we all have have questions as well. If you're on the outside of Christianity, if you wouldn't call yourself a believer, then you have questions about Christianity. Even if you're a believer, you have questions about doctrine or teachings. And we all have in common that we have questions about God and we have questions about, more importantly, where we stand with that God. And in fact, that is the question more than any that demands an answer. Where do I stand with God? Sometimes we, we have it backwards. Within the, the Christian church, Sometimes it is, is those who are, are disengaged, those who, who aren't very active or lively in a congregation that seem to be the most confident. And if you were to talk to them, they would explain, well, I don't feel the need to be all that active or to be there every Sunday because I know what it takes. I believe in Jesus. There's really not much more to it than that. 
So I don't need to be there every week. On the other hand, there are some that are very actively engaged in the congregation. They're here every Sunday and they're, they're participating in this, that, and the other thing, not because of their confidence, because of maybe some doubt and uncertainty. And they're hoping that every little bit may be as if this is how God would operate, that, that I can just go above and beyond just to make sure, just to be certain. And both have it wrong. Because if it's going to start with Jesus, then it's not primarily a concern of, of how often I'm in God's house or how active I am in my church, but it starts with Jesus. And that's what Nicodemus realized. Again, we don't even know really what it was that, that prompted, what exactly it was that was unsettling to Nicodemus. But as we look at this exchange, the interaction between the two of them, you do notice something. You notice that, that Jesus takes over. Whatever it was that drove Nicodemus to him, Jesus was the one who took control of the conversation to give Nicodemus what he needed. Because that's what Jesus has to do when it comes to our salvation. If Jesus doesn't take control, then our situation would be hopeless. You heard the question, or the statement rather, that, that Nicodemus made as he approached Jesus in that evening. John records it for us in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And? You notice there's no question there? He comes and he makes a, a statement. Okay? Do you have a question, Nicodemus? It's as if Nicodemus was kind of talking himself through it, trying to figure out how to articulate what was unsettling him. He didn't even know necessarily the question to ask Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He takes control of the conversation and he steps in. Rather than waiting for Nicodemus to kind of bumble his way through some semblance of a, uh, an intellectual question, Jesus takes control of the conversation. And we have Jesus' reply recorded as well in verse 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus gives Nicodemus the one thing that he needs. The answer to that question, where do I stand with God? What is my status? How do I get right with God? And you better believe that, that Nicodemus' pharisaical ears perked right up when he heard that first part of what Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God. No one. Not you Pharisees. Not based on your recognition or your reputation. Disregard all of your accolades and achievements and all of the things that you think are going to impress God. No one can see the kingdom of God. Unless, as Jesus continued, they are born again. Now before we, we jump in so quickly and, and kind of roll our eyes at Nicodemus for his foolish response, he, he almost seems like a, a child as he replies to Jesus. You'd have to assume, well, of course, Jesus wasn't speaking literally, but nonetheless, Nicodemus raises the question and says, well, how can this be? 
How can a grown-up, how can an adult man be, be born again? How can he go back into the womb and, and change his status in any way whatsoever? But before you're too hard on Nicodemus, realize he's illustrating exactly the point that Jesus wanted him to conclude. This is impossible. If you want to know where you stand with God on the basis of your own merits or actions, you must come to the conclusion that it is impossible. And is there a better picture than, than being born? When is the last time that you reflected on that wonderful day, your birthday? You said to yourself, I remember it well. Yeah, leading up to that day, I remember there was a lot of planning and preparation that, that went into it. There was the grueling training that was required to get ready for the big day. And then when I was finally ready to do it and, and worked up the muster to, to trade in the womb for the world, there I went, here I come world, and I was born. Foolishness, right? You played no part in your physical birth. None of us do. Jesus wants you to realize you play no part in your spiritual birth as well. We might be inclined to, to kind of push back a little bit on that as we are Christians. Though I don't know that you would come right out and confess that or admit that to me. But the truth is that we struggle, all of us, just a little bit at some times and mightily at other times to really believe that God can't look at me and see something that is a redeemable quality. We boil it down into an us and them. There's two categories of people. There are believers and there are unbelievers. And we know what it takes to, to be saved and have the assurance and the confidence of salvation. But, but along the way, as long as we are here, this, this side of heaven, there is that part of us that clings to this notion of a little bit of self-righteousness. That there's something in me that God saw that, that those unbelievers don't have. Now before you deny it, consider why it is that we struggle so much to forgive other people sometimes, or why it is so hard for us to see grace extended to certain people. Your, your quick answer is going to be, it's because of who they are. It's because of what they've done. It's because of how deeply they hurt me. But you know what? Your struggle to forgive somebody else or your reluctance to see grace and mercy extended to somebody else is not because of who they are. The problem is because of who you think you are. You think that you are a step above them. When we struggle to forgive others, that's why it is. Because I think just a little bit more highly of myself than of them. I would never have done that. Or if I did that, here's how I would have made it right or responded. But this person is not like me. So it's not that you struggle because they're, they're so bad or so awful and, and once they earn it or deserve it, then you'll extend that grace and mercy. It's because you think so highly of yourself. We all do. It's that little bit of self-righteousness that Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus to say, until we eradicate that, until we, we are aware that that has nothing and no merits before God, there's no conversation. It's a deal breaker. So he needs Nicodemus to conclude that his situation was hopeless. And he did that not only by directing Nicodemus to the fact that, that his works weren't going to work, it had to be God's works for things to work, but then Jesus takes the focus away from Nicodemus and his inability and puts it where it needs to be in terms of salvation on God and his work. 
That's what Jesus was illustrating when he explained how the process continues in in verses 5 and following. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is emphasizing this work of salvation, this confidence of entry into heaven has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. When the Bible talks about that word flesh, giving birth to flesh, it's never a positive term. It refers to corrupt, utterly sinful mankind. And all corrupt, utterly sinful mankind can do is give birth to corrupt, utterly sinful mankind. As parents, we can set up our children for the greatest success, and they can far outpace us and succeed us by the world's values. But you know what? At the end of the day, before God, all the best we can offer up to him from any of our kids or the generation after us is more sinners. That's the absolute best we can do. And that's not going to be good enough before God. It's got to be the Spirit to give birth to the Spirit. God has to do the work. And when and where he does that is entirely up to him. No more assuredly can we determine when the wind is going to blow or with which intensity or which direction the wind is going to blow. Jesus says, neither are you the one who is going to control when and where somebody is brought to faith and kept in the faith and sustained in the faith. That is God's business, not yours and not mine. Still, Nicodemus didn't quite grasp how that could be. So Jesus, compassionate, tender, patient Jesus, boils it down into the simplest, beautiful gospel terms that he can. Those verses that include arguably the most well-known, famous scripture in all of the Bible, John 3.16. Listen as he simplifies it for Nicodemus, in verses, uh, starting with verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus introduces this beautiful gospel verse with the picture taking, taking Nicodemus back to an account that surely he was familiar with in the history of his people when the Israelites in the wilderness were grumbling and complaining and then God sent venomous snakes upon them and, and many were bitten and, and died. But those who were sick, those who were ailing, God directed Moses to take a bronze snake and hoist it up onto a pole and everybody who looks up at that bronze snake will be healed and saved. And Jesus connects the dots for Nicodemus to say in the same way of that really foolishness because why would a bronze snake save anybody from a snake bite? There's no anti-venom there. There's nothing there that makes sense, but, but neither does God's work. Why should it be? But it is that anybody who looks up not at a bronze snake, but to Jesus suspended and crucified for the sins of all mankind, anybody who in faith looks up to him as Savior has the same confidence of healing and being saved. Nicodemus, it's not your work. It's God's. God has done all the work. 
believe it. And then he explains why he can have that confidence, because God demonstrated his love, taking care of all of the work that was necessary, sending his son into this world to achieve the holiness that we couldn't, to pay the price that our sin deserved. That's the extent of God's love. So Nicodemus could walk away from this conversation confident, not because of his own works or anything that was required of him, but because he knew for certain that he was in with God on the basis of what his Savior Jesus had done for him. You and I can walk away from here this morning confident, not because you have come away with some exercise or, or some requirements that you have to meet, but because you have been reminded once again that God loved you so much to take care of all of it for you. Just believe it. The account of, of Nicodemus, this clandestine conversation between the two of them, kind of ends with a, a surprise ending. There isn't one. You realize we don't know what happens after this account? Here this individual comes to Jesus wondering, unsettled, doubting, and... and we're not told what happens to him. Jesus speaks these words and then some more after it and then John just carries on with the gospel. Wait a minute. What happened to Nicodemus? Did he come to faith? Was he a believer? Did he go and tell the Pharisees to bug off? I'm not with you anymore. I'm with this guy. I found the way, the truth, and the life. I found salvation. My soul is free. We don't know. He does come up later in the gospels. Mentioned a couple of times. One, it seems to come to Jesus' defense pointing out amongst his own law keepers uh, that there was a right way to do things. And then later on, again, at the end of the gospel, we see Nicodemus mentioned alongside a disciple of Jesus, Joseph, at Jesus' burial. So while it stands to reason, it would be a reasonable conclusion that if Nicodemus was suddenly interested in burying Jesus after his death along with a believer, and we're still even told at that point he was afraid of the Jews, that in all likelihood he had become a believer. But we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. In the account of Nicodemus, we're left hanging. Perhaps that was intentional. Perhaps John doesn't tell us how everything played out because he wants us not to be worried or focused on how things played out for Nicodemus, but he wants us to rest on to ponder, to reflect on the words that Jesus shared and apply those words to ourselves so that we could be certain of where we're going to be, so that we can be assured that not because of our own works or our merits, but because God has given us exactly what we need in Christ Jesus, that we can be confident we're in. Even though our sin by nature has excluded us and we're on the outside, looking in through Christ and only through Christ, we have entry into salvation. Jesus is the proof. Believe it. Amen.